We're going to jump right into the passage today, and if it's Luke chapter 10, if you've got a Bible with you, I'd like you to find Luke chapter 10. We're going to start at verse 25, and we're going to stand for the reading of God's Word. It's a familiar passage to many of us, but uh, it continues to be exciting because it's the words of Jesus for us today. If you're using one of those red church Bibles that are being um, hastily distributed because I forgot before, uh, it's on page 646. This is Luke chapter 10. Starting at verse 25, it says, One day an expert in religious law stood up to test Jesus by asking him this question. Teacher, what should I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus replied, What does the law of Moses say? How do you read it? The man answered, You must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, and all your mind. And love your neighbor as yourself. Right, Jesus told him, do this. And you will live. And the man wanted to justify his actions. So he asked Jesus, well, who is my neighbor? Well, Jesus replied with a story. A Jewish man was traveling from Jerusalem down to Jericho and he was attacked by bandits. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him up and left him half dead beside the road. By chance, a priest came along. But when he saw the man lying there, he passed him by. A temple assistant walked over and looked at him lying there, but he also passed by on the other side. Then a despised Samaritan came along, and when he saw the man, he felt compassion for him. Going over to him, the Samaritan soothed his wounds with olive oil and wine and bandaged them. And he put the man on his own donkey and took him to an inn where he took care of him. And the next day, he handed the innkeeper two silver coins, telling him, take care of this man. If his bill runs higher than this, I'll pay you the next time I'm here. Now, which of these three would you say was a neighbor to the man who was attacked by bandits? Jesus asked. Well, the man replied, well, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said, yes. Now, go and do the same. Let's be seated. We're thankful to the Lord for his word. All right. Did I dismiss children for sixth, up to sixth grade for children's church? They just went, didn't they? Awesome. Good Samaritan. You've heard that term. This is one of those cool things from the Bible that has worked its way so much into our culture. People don't even know they're making a biblical reference in the news when they talk about a Good Samaritan situation or Good Samaritan laws. Or you read in the paper that, you know, the Good Samaritan was gunned down when helping the stranded motorist or the, 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 the child was saved by a good Samaritan passing by, etc., etc. It's just in our lingo. It's just in our language. I love those little, little hints in our, in our terminology that remind us of the depth of influence of God's Word throughout history, particularly Western history. But I would say it's not easy to really draw... If you were to tell the story in contemporary terms, it's not really easy to draw um, really strong parallels, I don't, I don't think. But, you know, perhaps you could say the priest and, and the Levite, what the, the Levite, the, the New Living Translation translates that temple assistant. Remember, the priests are the ones who did the religious work. Levites were the tribe that, that assisted, that made everything kind of happen. Um, you could say maybe those, those guys represent pastors or respected you know, city leaders or, um, you know, maybe the equivalent of the today's equivalent of the Samaritan for us in our city might be those who would be an illegal American resident. 
But there's this divide. You've got to understand for the Jewish people, there's a divide. And always the Samaritans are the bad guys. Um, uh, and, and they would definitely expect the priest and the temple assistant to be the good guys in the story. And the Samaritan to be the villain. And Jesus, of course, like he always does, turns everything upside down. And when the expert in religious law, this Jewish lawyer, came to Jesus to ask about eternal life, what must I do? It says, you know, it says in verse 25 that he stood up to test Jesus. But I think it's fair to assume that he was a genuine seeker. There's no real indication of a hostility in his in his questioning. Um, he, he might be a bit hostile, but I think he's just pushing for some clarity. He really wants to know. I mean, he's been a guy who's been faithful to the Jewish law. He's kept the rules and he wants to either he wants to know, well, where does Jesus stand on all this? Because I'm curious about this rabbi. So what is he teaching? Or maybe he's just tired of religion and he wants to know, am I really saved? Like all this religious stuff that I'm doing, Jesus, rabbi, does it actually add up to anything? I think some of us are like that. We've been pretty faithfully religious for a long, long time. And we're wondering, okay, remind me again, what does it take to be saved? Or do I even need to be saved? Because I feel like I'm doing a lot of good religious stuff and I'm not sure that it's really making a difference. Maybe that's you. And if so, Jesus is here to help. Because he wants you to be free. Maybe this lawyer, this, this religious man had, had worked so hard all his life avoiding all the wrong things that he missed doing the right things. Ever feel that way? Man, I, I just, you know, it's like you hear in the news you really should not eat butter. You should really eat margarine. So you're just really conscientious about that. And all of a sudden they say, you really should not eat margarine. You should eat butter. I could have been eating butter. Right. You really should avoid anything that's tasty and just eat tofu and cardboard. And then I'm looking forward to the day when they're going to say tofu's terrible for you. And you need to eat more red meat. That's what I'm looking forward to. Right. So it's like that. Sometimes we've worked so hard avoiding all the wrong things and we miss doing the right things. Well, that's a form of legalism and legalism. Here's the thing about legalism. One thing it's legalism is easy to measure, but it's hard to maintain. So with legalism, you either do right or you do wrong. You either keep the law or you break the law. Right. You're either in or you're out. Really defined categories. Right. And, and legalism starts to break down. Did you, did you wear the right clothes or the wrong clothes? Did you say the right things or say the wrong things? Did you read the right translation or did you read the wrong translation? It tends to go down and down. So then even the commands to love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, all your mind, right? And then the command to love your neighbor as yourself. These are actually really frustrating commands because how do you measure that? How do you know when you've loved God with all of those things? How, how do you, how can you tell if you've really loved your neighbor? Because 
And I'm not even sure who my neighbor is, which is what this man's problem was. Jesus came to invite you away from the, the way of legalism into the way of love. Let me say that again. Jesus came to draw you away from legalism into the way of love. You know, if legalism is easier to measure but hard to do, love is hard to measure and simple to do. Law-keeping tends to make things about duty. Love-keeping tends to make things personal, daily. It's an ongoing relationship with God and with others that's life-giving and it's life-giving for now and for all eternity. That's what love-keeping does versus law-keeping. Not that we ignore God's laws. That's not what we're saying here. God's standards haven't changed. It's not suddenly okay to worship idols or to commit adultery or to steal or to kill somebody. Those laws haven't changed. But when you trust Jesus for salvation, the Spirit imprints onto your heart what is right and what is wrong. And so you obey not to be saved, but because you are saved. Not to earn something, but in response to what you've already been freely given called salvation by God's grace through His faith. When He gives that to you, it's just like, oh, I'm, I'm a new creation, so therefore I live differently as opposed to, boy, if I keep all these rules, maybe then I'll be better. Maybe then I'll be different. Maybe then God will love me. Maybe then I'll be acceptable. Maybe then I'll st- stop struggling with fear and worry and doubt. It's not about being saved, doing things to be saved. It's doing things out of the salvation God's already gifted to you in a friendship with Him. Maybe we could say it this way. The standard of the law is good, but impossible to keep. The standard of the law is good, but it's impossible to keep. Now, that may not sound like good news. What? What? Right? I mean, how am I going to do this? All the law can do, and the Apostle Paul deals with this in the New Testament, particularly in Romans and Galatians. All the law can do is point out to my own inability to maintain God's holy standard. So underlying this man's question, this lawyer's question to Jesus, right? Those, what should I do to inter- inherit eternal life? You see that right at the beginning there, verse 25. Under that is a recognition that being a good person isn't enough. Because he's a good person. He's really good. He's worked really hard to be really good. He's a, like he's good at being good. Right? He's an expert. And it's not good enough. He knows the answer. He knows what the right answer is. But he also knows that it's impossible. So what's missing? Because there's something missing here. Well, he needs to move past knowing about God. Right? Most Americans would say that they believe in God. In other words, they would agree that there's God of some kind out there. He needs to move past believing in God or knowing about God, moving past keeping the rules to knowing God personally. We've been talking about this lately. This sense of being able to converse with God without... A whole lot of rigmarole. 
He needs to stop trusting his own ability to be righteous and trust God to make him righteous. That's what we call faith. Now, here's the best thing God's rules do for us. They push us to faith in God's mercy. That's the good thing about the rules. Right? They show us that self-righteousness, righteous means to be in right standing with, with God, right? They, they show us that self-righteousness is actually unrighteousness because I'm not trusting God. I'm not counting on God. I'm counting on me. I make an awfully lousy God. I don't know. It's like, you know, it's because we want to do the right thing, but we can't. It's sort of like, Child, those of you who are parents, remember when the kids were small, like really small, like two or younger? And, and they do this. Up. Up. Remember that? Up. Up. You see them in the grocery store. Up. Right? The child wants, in a sense, wants the right thing. Wants to be connected to the, to the parent. That's, the, that's a good thing. Wouldn't you say that's a good thing in general? Particularly when it's grandma or grandpa comes over. Come on, grandma grandpa. Isn't that the best thing? When they say, ah, right? That's a beautiful thing. And so what do you do? You stand there and say, okay, come up. Don't you? It's not, I mean, wouldn't that make sense? If that's what they want to do and it's the right thing to do, all right, if you want up so bad, come on up. Why not? Why won't they come up? Because they can't. They lack the ability to do the right thing. So what does grandma do or grandpa do or mom or dad? We reach down. What did God do for us in Jesus? Reaches down, sends his son Jesus and says, come on up. Ah, yeah, there we go. And the arms go around your neck, right? Doesn't that feel good? Feel good? Don't you just love that when that happens? That's what's going on in God's grace the law tells us, up, up. We can't do it. And God's grace comes, scoops you up, and holds you close. The desire is there, but it's the Father's action that completes the connection. So in inquiring of Jesus, the man paints himself into a corner in a sense, right? He's like, uh-oh, what have I done? He... You know, he says, well, what should I do, Jesus? And basically, Jesus says, well, you already know what to do. I mean, you have the answer, so go and do it. Uh-oh. Now what? <laughs> right? Maybe he's working so hard to be religious that he misses the needs of people right in front of him. But he wants, the Bible says here, it says, wanting to justify himself, right? Wanting to maybe excuse his actions or maybe to find a way to get some stamp of approval on his, on his behavior from Jesus. Well, who is my neighbor? Jesus, right? Maybe he's hoping that his neighbor is the good friend that lives next door or, or the good friend that he, he stands with at the synagogue to worship. Maybe that's what he was hoping. That's my neighbor. And the law says, love your neighbor but human nature always looks for ways to keep, keep the law as minimally as possible. To do kind of the bare minimum. That's our human nature. Oh, the law is here? Okay, well, I'll just, just barely meet that law. That's our tendency. Or maybe we avoid it altogether. And this is another problem of legalism. The more rules you live by, the more rules you need to create 
to maintain the rules. You need rules about the rules. Right? We go through this as, as parents when we're trying to discipline our kids. Okay, none of this. Well, what about this? Right? You, some of your parents, you grounded your kids. You're grounded. Well, can I go to youth group? Well, they just know what to do every time, right? I don't know. Have you, have you heard this? That you just paid your taxes or filed your tax or maybe got a tax refund. I love how the government makes you think they're giving you money when you get a refund. It's your money. You gave it to them all year long. Oh, you can have some of it back. No offense, Kimberly. <laughs> right? I learned this week that the IRS tax code is like over 74,000 pages long. During the Reagan administration, it was about 26,000 pages long. But 100 years ago, it was 400 pages long. Do we really need the extra 75,600 pages to tell us, cut a check, send it in? Right? That's rules upon rules. Legalism does that. And laws are necessary. We can't live without laws. But they always, they always accumulate. And maybe the lawyer was looking for a loophole. An excuse, a way to say he'd kept the law, but in his heart, he, he knew he wasn't enough. And Jesus helped him out by telling this marvelous story of the, of the Samaritan and the priest and the Levite and the, the injured traveler. Jesus' audience would know this setting. The, the road, they knew the road to Jericho was bad. I'm told it's like a descent of about 3,600 um, feet of elevation. And uh, it's, so it's steep, it's craggy, it's twisted, it's close to 20 miles long. It's through the mountains. The reputation for danger was well known up until even recent decades. It's a dangerous, treacherous place. No one should travel there alone. But isn't it remarkable? In Jesus' story, they're all traveling alone, apparently. It's a strange story. They're all in danger at every move. And any of the three could have helped the injured man, but they didn't. Remember last week we talked about threes, things always in threes when Jesus teaches? And the priest and the Levite, maybe they used the excuse of ceremonial cleanliness. That's why they couldn't do it. I, I don't know. It's not mentioned. Jesus doesn't say they were traveling to Jerusalem. We know that the man was traveling away from Jerusalem. So they may or may not have been going to the temple. The hearers intuitively knew you can't just leave a dying man on the side of the road, whatever your excuse is. You, you just can't do that. And yet, in the story, only the despised Samaritan bothers to help. And covering the expenses himself along the way. He does the right thing. And we can talk about love all day long. And we can talk about how much we love God and how much we love people and how much we love one another. But without action, it's just talk. And I'm sure we've all been guilty at some point, of, of not responding to a need that was in front of us. But here's the thing. Let's put it this way. Love is only love when it's demonstrated. Love is only love when it's demonstrated. I mean, if God set up the law so we'd recognize our need for His mercy and then showed us His love by extending His mercy to save us, right? So He says, hey, you need mercy. Guess what? I'm going to give you mercy. Then we show our love to God by extending his mercy to others. See, the Samaritan could easily have passed by the wounded traveler. He might have rationalized saying, well, he's a Jew and I'm a Samaritan and he wouldn't, he wouldn't want me touching him. Right? Or he, he could have passed by and said, boy, somebody needs to help that guy. 
right? I'll put a call in when I get to Jericho. Or he, he could have said, I don't really communicate. Our languages are different. There's a like, language barrier. I'll, I'll, I'll wait for someone who speaks his language to help. But instead, he responded in mercy. And that, Jesus shows us, is what it means to love and how to have eternal life. To be a merciful person. Mercy is an act of love because a person needing mercy probably can't pay you back. They probably cannot return the favor. They, they cannot fix their own problem even. And they probably don't run in your friendship circles. And that's why they need mercy because they can't do it themselves. And we're going to start a message series uh, in a couple weeks when I get back. We're just going to call it Keywords. And we're going to just pick up on some of the essential terms of our faith and what they mean and why they matter. And so we're going to be talking about love in, in just a couple of weeks. But there's just a really fundamental point about love here. Love is action. Love is action. Love is not talk or knowledge. It's action. It's not even feelings or emotions. Love is action. If you claim, if I claim to love God and love my neighbor, it only stands up if I prove it by action. God said this many years ago through, through the prophet Micah. Micah was a, he was a, a prophet, he's an Old Testament prophet. And, and as God's chosen people, Israel had experienced um, you know, special help and favor from God for centuries. And yet they could not seem to turn their hearts consistently toward God. Israel was religious. They could keep all the rules and go to the temple and the sacrifices and do all that stuff. But Micah preached that all the religious activity means nothing without the acts of love to prove it. It says this in Micah 6, 8. Let's put this on screen. We'll, in fact, we could read it together. Ready? O oh people, the Lord has told you what is good. And this is what He requires of you. To do what is right. To love mercy. And to walk humbly with your God. Do what's right. Love mercy. Walk humbly. See, legalism strives to prove who's right and who's wrong. Love seeks to respond as needed, regardless. God is merciful, and therefore, God's true children are merciful as well. I can admit, um, I'm not always merciful. That's a growth area for me. And when I find myself saying things like, well, that person got what he deserves, that's unmerciful, right? Or when I get an attitude towards someone who struggles maybe with something that I don't, that's unmerciful. When I'm impatient or intolerant of those who need a little extra time or attention, that's unmerciful. Jesus answered the man's question, the lawyer's question, which was, what do I need to do to enter eternal life? Jesus responded by pointing out mercy is the way. Why? Because a merciful person is someone. Let's look at these three things. A merciful person is someone who recognizes their need for salvation. Right. They realize they can't save themselves by, by good effort. And they receive God's mercy into their own life. I, I don't Maybe that's true of you or maybe it's not. But. You know, do you recognize in your own life, I need salvation? Or would you say, I don't really need salvation. I'm, I'm pretty good. Like, I don't see what the problem is. You're not ready to be a merciful person. It's not until you come to that place of saying, I'm pretty messed up. 
I need salvation. Right. And then you realize, oh, I can't save myself by being a good person, by trying hard, by doing more. Okay, that creates a situation where I've got to depend on someone else. And so, therefore, I receive God's mercy into my own life. That's a merciful person who's gone through those steps. Now, the answer may be love God and love neighbor. But guess what? You can't love God and and love your neighbor without God's mercy active and alive in your life. But when you receive mercy... You can show mercy. John, 1 John 4.19 says that we love because Christ loved us first. Maybe we should ask the same question. Who's my neighbor? Jesus might tell the same story. And come to the same conclusion. The neighbor is anyone needing mercy. So who's your neighbor? Who in your life is in need of of mercy. Someone that trips you up, frustrates you, has some extra need. Someone who gets underfoot. Someone who knocks on the door. Someone you pass by. Let's bring this back home. How are you going to live forever? How are you going to live forever? Because being a good person won't do it. Keeping the rules of religion won't do it. Right? Being an expert Christian won't do it. Making sure others are keeping the rules, that won't do it. Only faith in Christ will save you. It's the only way. And the person with true faith is obvious. Because you, you'll see acts of mercy. When I say mercy, there's a bunch of things that fall into that category. Let me ask you this. When you squeeze an orange, what comes out? Juice. What kind of juice? Orange juice. All right. When someone squeezes you, what comes out? <laughs> Mercy or frustration, angry retorts, bitterness, anxiety, mercy, compassion. Wouldn't that be great if you as a believer were so filled with God's mercy, you so received God's mercy into your life, you so understand how much you needed it, That when the squeeze is on, when some uncomfortable people are in your life, out comes mercy. A great thing. Wouldn't you like to be known as that? I'm going to invite you to stand as we close. I've got two questions for you to think about as we're singing as you head off into the week. First question is who's your neighbor? And God might actually put a name and a face in your life right now. Or it might be a general category of people. It might be an ethnic group. It might be a family member. Who knows? Who is your neighbor? Second question is, have you received God's mercy 
into your life. Whether you maybe have, have, you know, came to faith in Christ years ago, but you're kind of stuck, or maybe you've never trusted Christ for salvation. Why not receive His mercy? Stop trying to get to heaven on your own and trust Him. It's the only way. I invite you to bow your heads as we close in prayer. Father, thank you for this really great story. Um, here's a story that's so durable. We're, we're still telling it, even without knowing it's from the Bible so often. I thank you. That it so perfectly illustrates your heart. And Lord, it's easy to love the people that love us back. And it's easy to care for the people who care for us. But God, what about the ones who, who have no ability to fix themselves or to, to give back to us. God, we want to be merciful people. And so even, I would ask, God, even right now, that you would put in my mind and heart, who is my neighbor? And then, Lord, I, I also want to just ask you to, to remind us again of what it means to receive your mercy into our lives. I thank you that you love us enough to keep pouring it in. And church, while heads are bowed and eyes are closed, I just invite you to think this through. Who's my neighbor? And have I received God's mercy? And maybe you're someone right now saying, I want to start a relationship with God. I'm tired of trying to be a good person and get to heaven by, by that means. I want to receive God's mercy and know that I'm saved and in a relationship with God. If that's you, it's a really simple thing. You could just pray a simple prayer like, Jesus, I believe you're the Son of God. I know you died for my sin. Please forgive me. I receive your mercy. And I want to follow you all my days. You know, if you prayed something like that, maybe you prayed today or recently, or you want to pray something like that, would you let me or someone know? Because we want to help you with what that means to, to make that kind of a a locked-in reality for your life. So God, we thank you for your, our, the opportunity we've had to, to be in your word together today. Let it continue to, to work us over in the days to come. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.